Welcome to Lay Film. My name is Kevin, one of the co-hosts, and my other co-host with me today is Patrick. And we basically try to find, uh, whether it's movies, TV shows, anything that kind of flies under the radar, and we try to bring a little bit of exposure toward that work of art just to give it more attention. And uh, for anyone who's listened in to some of our previous episodes, we tend to go over like an overview of whatever it is that we're discussing, and then we hop into spoiler territory. And we have a recurring guest on the show today. He first appeared on our episode where we did a back-to-back review of the short film Possibly in Michigan, as well as the feature film Imposters. His name is Ben's Doctor and it's great to have him back on. And I wanted to start off by just asking what everybody's first introduction to Twin Peaks was. Uh, Pat, you were talking about a video game called Deadly Premonition. Can you elaborate on that, please? As a direct ripoff, Twin Peaks entirely, that I forget even what year it came out. It's really janky, uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's like a, it's clearly a direct ripoff without literally using the same names and plot points and all the other mystery and suspense. But uh, I saw that, I loved that, and then uh, that really enlightened me on Twin Peaks. And then I checked it out originally on Netflix way back when, I think I was in college, and my exposure to the Lynch was very low back then. I think Twin Peaks is probably my first big thing I've seen by Lynch. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's an all-time classic. My constant fear of ripoff in my own work and thoughts. What about you, Benz? Um, I would say my first exposure to Twin Peaks was maybe 10 years ago. Um... I have a friend, his name is Joe Hall, and he watches a lot of TV. I don't watch, like, any TV, pretty much. I just watch, like, films, basically. Um, but I, I really uh, like his opinion on, like, on on films. I need, like, Twin Peaks, right? And uh, it was Lynch. Um, and at this time, it was, like, actually kind of hard to find because there was, like, no Blu-ray of Twin Peaks released yet, I think. But it was on Netflix, I checked it out and it was like pretty hooked from the uh, pilot episode, which is an hour and a half long. It was like, it was like, a, it was pretty much like a movie. So it was like, oh, I'm like, this is like a movie kind of like the pilot episode, an hour and a half. So it was, um, it was a pretty easy transition. And it's like very, um, it's one of its more accessible works, I think. 
Yeah, I, I definitely gotta agree on the accessibility of this series as opposed to some of his other movies in his um, catalog. Uh, my my own experience with being introduced to Twin Peaks was through a friend in high school, who um, and actually multiple people I know in that time period. I I would just see that they were into like, for instance, like David Lynch, like Eraserhead, uh, a few of those other movies um, in his earlier years. And I just never really found myself dipping into that uh, area of uh, of sort of that surrealist look and everything like that up until about, I want to say 2015, 2016. And, you know, after finally, you know, just getting through it all one day, I, I saw it on Netflix as well. And I tried watching it, I want to say the first two to three episodes and I it was just not for me right off the bat just because it was I felt that it was too slow I felt that there was too much melodrama I didn't quite understand all of these tiny little vignettes that were occurring during the episodes it it made me question how or why they were even a part of the narrative itself and then I want to say that you know a couple months went by and I just sort of forgot about it. But then all of a sudden, I want to say it was during the fall of that same year, I had this this urge to rewatch it again just to see if if you know before completely entirely writing it off. And then right when I got to episode eight of the first season, which is the season finale, I it, it suddenly hit me, and I was completely hooked from that point onward because. Uh, I, I've talked about this a little bit before when it comes to um, finding works of art at the wrong point in time. And it, it, the most common example that I use is like finding an album that you that didn't quite hit the first time that you listened to it. But then after like a few months go by, you revisit it and then it ends up being one of your favorite albums to like go back to time and time again. And Twin Peaks is definitely that for me. It is easily one of my top five favorite series that I've ever uh, watched. And I think it's actually changed myself as a person, um, especially with like such hard hitting characters. It's like Major Briggs and Truman and and Cooper and like all these other people. And I don't know, there's just such a there's such a radiant warmth in this series, while also a bitter and grim a reminder of sort of the harsh realities that are lurking about this this strange place that we inhabit. And after I finished up the first two seasons, I went back, watched uh, Firewalk with me, of course, and then also The Missing Pieces, which is uh, sort of uh, cut, deleted scenes from Firewalk with me. And... Um, after that, I got very much into David Lynch's back catalog, starting with um, Eraserhead, uh, Blue Velvet, and then Elephant Man. And then after that, I kind of started getting into his later works. And then, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much where I'm at. I don't want to get too... Uh, like, I, I love David Lynch as an artist and as a filmmaker, as a storyteller. I think that... Uh, Pat and I were, were talking about this before we even started the episode. Um, 
Pat, do you want to just like re rephrase what you were saying about about Lynch? Yeah, uh, to me, he's a great example of uh, an author we were very lucky to have here in the states. Like, without Lynch, uh, we have more of the uh, we only have the more mainstream Hollywood names, but like with Lynch in our film history in this nation, we have a big. We have a big claim to fame of like a unique, completely its own artistic expression creator that, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah. He's on par for me with like some of the more, the French directors of like the New Wave era that just stand out as having their own voice and vision. Um, you, you made a unique comparison between Lynch and Godard. Uh, what, what, what was it that you said about that? What, my, my hot take or my yes your your hot take I want to hear the hot take Pat <laughs> my my hot take was uh I think Godard fell off he like broke his own brain in the uh, whole meta whole artistic experience whole just the yeah a bit of a bodyard break but he didn't kill himself I uh, agree with this completely. But Lynch didn't. Lynch just kept being his weird ass self, which is like maybe it's a maybe it's the American exceptionalism in himself that allows him to persevere and yeah. Lash out with Mulholland Drive about like the uh, the creeps in Hollywood he interacts with. Yeah, it, it's very strange because um you'd think that like I mean it, it's something that we see quite a bit where uh you have artists who continue long into their career and then eventually they sort of lose touch with sort of the younger generation and some of the um some of the newer issues that come up in terms of like cultures and like everything like that whereas lynch just seems so ingrained into the deep inner web of everything and he's only gotten better in 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 my own opinion especially with his I mean, with season three of Twin Peaks, it, it was just a complete. I, <laughs> I, I'm still even having trouble trying to formulate how, how pivotal that that series is going to be. You know, like ten years from now, like it already is. Like right when it dropped back in, I want to say like 2017, it was it was a brain buster for sure, and I don't know, I. I'm just very I'm I'm also very fortunate to have some sort of filmmaker like that to look up to in in our own country and stuff like that. Uh just as like sort of like oh gosh. Sort of like a pivotal like monument in a way to be like hey, that's something that we could like pull from and we can look back to and there were some interesting perspectives that were found inside of this television show that completely reshaped everything that came afterwards like there's so many tv shows that were inspired by twin peaks and sort of follow the same uh dynamics of an outsider coming into a small isolated community and then discovering like an, a hidden underbelly to it all um the top of, off the top of my head I, I think of like true detective or um any other or Ozarks or like any type of show that has that similar type of feel to it. Um, and then also establishing sort of a grounded reality versus a 
a sort of airy, ethereal realm. And then somewhere in between those two is where the viewer finds themselves in. Oh yeah, I agree. It's a totally pivotal show. Um, considering that television uh, is, I would say, more inherently commercial than uh, films, you know, um, because films uh, sometimes they're sometimes they're like government funded or self funded, um, and and there's a lot of uh, subsidization with film. Like with TV, it's like a totally, you know, at least here, it's like very, very commercial. So it's like, it's, it's pretty, um, interesting, like when this series came out and, um, like it's reception and, and, uh, it's like that. Well, um, with that said, shall we go ahead and get started on the actual episode itself? All right, so we start off episode one, pilot. Uh, I, I found it interesting that like this series was going to be called the Northwest Passage, and I, I sort of like attributed that, or I, I sort of linked that title to this first episode, and it kind of has like a very strange feel of like you're going, you're driving up into the woods, much like Dale going past the sign, going up around the bend, and then you're just sort you're sort of engulfed in these giant trees that kind of block you from seeing any sort of like distance past like 50 feet or whatever, and it's just enshrouded in fog. And it's sort of like a like a a, a portal to another dimension that you go through when entering in this this town. <laughs> And I love how the, the series actually starts off with, um, you know, of course, the opening credit, the opening credits uh, with the fabulous and amazing score by Angelo Badalamenti. And it's opening up on the logging uh, mill, the Packard mill. And it's so weird how Josie is the first character that's actually shown in the series. Um uh, and and then you see um, her looking into the mirror in sort of this very dreamy state, and then it's it's just like sort of yet another day where Pete Martell goes up to kiss his wife Catherine before he goes fishing, and you could kind of sense a bit of um, uh, resentment that is shared between the two, and I I love Pete's dialogue as he's going out to start fishing. Uh, it's just one simple line, and he says, The lonesome foghorn blows, as, you know, something off in the distance wails, and then he sees Laura Palmer. Um, what? How, how, did you, how did you all feel about, like, this first intro part to sort of the world and getting right into the actual narrative itself by showing the audience um, this, this strange alien concept of, you know, a girl washing up on shore wrapped in plastic in this homey little town. I want to I want to hop on <laughs> the original name concept. The mm -hmm. Northwest Passage is I love that. Is that the I'm trying to remember if this is correct. Is that the land bridge 
that formed, or is that another thing I'm thinking of? Are you talking about the land bridge from, um, like Proto, uh, yeah, Asia to North America? Yeah, that the Proto Indigenous people crossed to come to this the, this continent. It's a sea route between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans through the Arctic Ocean. And it goes along the northern coast of North America. Okay. And yeah, it's up there around the uh, Arctic Circle. Um, the, I think what you're thinking of is uh, Beringia, which was, uh, which was uh, during the uh, Ice Age. It was like an like uh, ice uh, that formed over the uh, Bering Sea. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's what I was thinking. Okay, never mind. Ignore that thought. I still love the name. It is a good, like, uh, visual. Like, it's like you're uh, stepping across into, like, a, a whole nother land. You know what I mean? Like, which plays into, like, the series later on. Yeah, yeah. It's a passage that, uh, It's a border town, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, Kevin, I love the... Uh, Lynch catches a certain Americana feeling, and a big part of that is the uh, integration of nature, especially in Twin Peaks. But yeah, yeah, that, that beautiful Washington, it's Washington, right? Region. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. I, I want to go there so bad just because of, just because of the show. I know you have. Oh yes, yes, I I have gone to that that town. I believe it's called Snowcolumny. Um, they're very well known for that specific waterfall that's shown in the beginning, Snoqualmie Falls. And of course, you have the hotel, the Great Northern, located just above it. And apparently that hotel is really well known for its pancakes and I guess like waffle batter. So they ended up making uh, a, distributable, a distributable form of that uh, batter itself that you can find in stores now. And like, honestly, it's like my favorite pancake batter to use. Um, (laughs) But anyway, aside from that, um, yeah, I I did get to go to that town and I have a photo of myself in front of the Twin Peaks sign. And I want to say that throughout over the years, they've had issues of uh, vandalism and there have been times where the sign has been taken down and then people were thinking that it was never going to come back again. And then all of a sudden they put it back. And when I went there, you could find uh, blue roses that people had left there, which is very, that's that's like a recurring motif throughout the series is the blue rose and sort of something that is both linked to nature, but also transcends it in a way to go into sort of like a metaphysical realm. And of course you have the, the double R diner that's located over in that same town. And Anyone who who's a huge fan of the show, and especially you, Pat, I highly recommend like I, going there just for the sake of it all. Because when I went, I it was like on my birthday, and uh, I I feel like I've been like preconditioned or like some something to sort of like retreat into myself on my birthday to where I I don't know I I feel like I didn't have as great of a time as I could have had going there if I had. Like, it's gotten better over the years. Like, I'm starting to slowly enjoy my birthday more and more. But I I definitely, looking back, I I really am thankful for that experience just because it was one of the most memorable days of my life, being able to, you know, walk around in in this town that actually exists. 
but isn't called Twin Peaks. But I don't know. It's it's just an amazing place with especially with just the uh, all the vegetation that's around. And and you bring up a really good point of uh, how big of a role nature has in this specific series and how it also stems back into that Americana that Lynch is just deeply, deeply uh, integrated into his own work throughout his lifetime. And I, I also want to say that uh, Mark Frost, the other showrunner, showrunner of the show, he has like such a, a pivotal role inside of the shaping of the series too. Um, Cause there's, Touching upon like an earlier point that you said about how with Godard he sort of like fell off a bit in terms of how he wasn't able to maintain his link to Earth anymore. And as as a huge fan of Lynch myself, I feel like he also struggles with that at times throughout his filmography, which is why I don't necessarily consider a lot of his movies to be like some of the best movies I've ever seen but I am still a fan of them nonetheless I just think that he has a tendency to go off into this sort of dreaminess that doesn't necessarily translate well it's kind of um almost incoherent at times and I feel like Mark Frost does an excellent job of reeling that in and sort of uh, putting an anchor to it all, to where it is legible, to where it is isn't so esoteric and cryptic, um, and I, yeah, like if anyone goes back and watches some of his movies, I'd be very curious to hear their take on 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 that as well, just because he he <laughs> I I forget where I saw it. It might have been in an interview between the two, but. I believe that there was a comparison that Mark Frost is like the the librarian of of David Lynch's ideas and he gets rid of all the ones that are kind of like frayed at the edges uh where like you know they've become illegible because they they're of like water damage anything like that and then he only archives the things that make sense <laughs> and and that can be linked to other details to enhance it they achieve a balance that's for sure I, I i i know exactly what you mean and what you're saying about lynch uh i have a deep admiration for like how out there it gets just because it feels like it's his own mindscape he's just forcing out there which i appreciate but yeah him and him and Frost's connection in this series uh it's really just the best of both of them brought out in each other and that kind of gets frayed towards the end uh, in season two, where I think, if I'm correct, Mark Frost gets more say. So I think Lynch even leaves the show for a period. And then Mark Frost kind of takes it off the rails in his own direction, where it's like, oh, I see. Like the opening. I forget Josie's in the opening every time. I, I think it's Pete. Mm-hmm. But that, yeah, but like Josie's inclusion just screams especially with stuff that happens later it's like is this is this mark is this a mark frost thing he's pushing to the forefront it's like yeah i forget i i genuinely forget every time it starts with her in the mirror my mind goes it's right to pete waking up that morning getting his coffee and going out right it it seems like such a i feel kind of conflicted about it too because i'm like 
I don't, I don't want to like spoil anything for anyone who's just getting introduced to it. So I'm going to refrain from um, what I was originally going to say. But I, I think that the more there's definitely more of a focus on the beats going on between Pete and starting the day off rather than it starting with Josie. And I, oh God, I just love Pete's character so much. He's just somebody who is just trying to toe the line between living a sort of like a decent life. He's just wanting to go out, go fishing. Uh, he has like a nice little setup with the with the logging mill, keep him afloat. And but he also has a resentful partner who I believe loves him at the heart of it all. But there's just a lot of tension between the two. And yes, um, I, I think that's that's exactly where my mind goes to. It, it starts with Pete, and I just I love the pacing of like these first few minutes of the episode as well. Uh, especially with that introduction, it just lulls you into a sense of... It, it, it's sort of like dropping you down gently t into this town. And now you're on the beach with Pete. And you see a body wrapped in plastic. And then eventually we, we move on to... Um, Pete phoning in to Lucy, <laughs> who's easily one of my favorite characters, uh, who is the, the receptionist or the dispatcher at the local police department. And he uh, basically tells her, you know, to get Harry S. Truman, who is the sheriff of the town. Also, one of my absolute top tier favorite characters, uh, who then goes on to meet up with Doc Hayward at the scene of the crime. There's there's just so many characters. <laughs> it's it's going to be a long time, but yeah. Uh, get introduced to him a lot this episode. And yeah, uh, I forget Lucy's the one. First of the sheriff crew we get introduced to. I kind of like all the characters. It gives off a very, um, very, uh, um, soap opera vibe. Like all the characters, um, and, uh, some of them are like, they, they play like such a good one note and then also very, um, very, uh, melodramatic, some of them. Some of the scenes are like kind of amazing early on it's like it's pretty great i love like the the little jokes that uh, are also tucked into there as well uh, especially with lucy and how she goes about over explaining everything to everyone even like the, the sheriff she's like okay yeah uh, i i patched you through to this phone it's not it's not the brown phone it's the black phone or something like that and she's like i placed it on the red chair and it's this and that and that and then all of a sudden sheriff just like takes five steps over and picks up the phone and then <laughs> it's just it's such a nice like little breakup between all the tension and it, it communicates so effectively like the uh how how idealized certain characters are and how like tr 
like uh yeah truman is just so patient and so ready and <laughs> just lets lucy finish and then he takes five steps he's like yeah i know but he doesn't he doesn't show it he's like a very patient like yeah he's like he's he's like the ideal cop he's the ideal sheriff he's not like a blue bloods or what's what's that show shield mm-hmm. like beating up people and planting evidence on them to get them off the streets he's a very sheriff like literally like western sheriff archetype it feels Mm -hmm. i definitely gotta agree on that um especially with the way that he interacts with a lot of his other colleagues too and i i like to think of him as not necessarily having an ego that gets in the way of his line of duty he it's it reminds me of like sort of like how doctors use I mean they still do take this oath but like the, the of the the Hippocratic oath where they swear themselves to like a set of um, personal beliefs to, and like cer- certain accountabilities that they have to maintain in order to continue their profession and it's like a sworn oath and I I, I feel like that sort of idea is embodied in Truman as well. And Pat, you're, you're very right about him being sort of like the ideal police officer and just sort of like this embodiment of, of justice, but also not overstepping their boundaries in a way. And he's, like you said, he's very patient and I love how gentle he is because you could tell that he has a lot of inner strength, but he chooses not to lash out and you know tell lucy to to get on with you know to hurry up or anything and i love how caring he is when he gets to the scene of the crime with uh with doc hayward and doc hayward is like another yet another upstanding character and i i i want to say that this show sort of introduced me to these very noble figures in of in a dark environment and it's also similar to why i like other certain shows like the one that you turned me on to pat was monster which is an anime and it sort of has like a similar feel to this where you have tiny beacons of light sprinkled throughout this very dark expansive abyss and it's it's the warmth that brings you back to it and like Doc Hayward is very much like that for me, especially later on in this episode, which we'll get to. Um, but going back to Truman, I love how gentle he is with with Andy, because Andy is you know yet another uh, police officer, and he always cries at the scene of the crime because he. I feel like Andy is low key like an empath, and <laughs> like he he just can't help but empathize with all of these like figures in a very heightened degree that it overwhelms him like what what do you all think about andy's character uh i love oh he's he's a great uh yeah he's just he's not like a pivotal i'm trying to think how to articulate this He's not like a Harry Truman or Cooper where they're like a an archetype or a, a paragon of good and that dives 
into this exploration Lynch does in all his movies of the darker side of humanity and community and all the other stuff. Uh, he's just more of like a pure, pure soul, a pure, a pure person. And yeah, that's, that was always the feeling I had. But I definitely, having seen the rest of the show, I definitely know what you mean about the empath stuff. That's a really good way to put it. I, I've always seen um, Cooper as like the, um, like the more, he's like very, he's an eccentric character and he's like more um, unconventional. Whereas um, Truman is like, he's like the convention, like a good guy, conventional, um, analytical. And, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's like the, it's like the third pillar of it where it's like, um, kind of like the emotional side, I feel of like the law enforcement angle or whatever. He's like a kid's character placed in the world. Like a, like a blues clues dad. <laughs> That's the feeling I get. <laughs> <laughs> So specific. <laughs> blues like, like clues. A, yeah, like a, like someone from the world of Blues Clues, where like the background's cartoons. Everyone, <laughs> lives, everyone lives perfect, peaceful lives. It feels like Andy's picked up from that and put into a, the real world. In, in this creation. <laughs> and it's like every single harsh reality that he faced, it's like almost witnessing it for the first time again. Yeah, just, <laughs> just pure emotion. But then he shows the strength that is also present <laughs> in those characters and those archetypes that's needed for developing kids. <laughs> um, this is, I feel like this episode does a very great job of, uh, like Benz, you, you mentioned it earlier about how even some of the secondary and minor characters in, in the show, they have their one note, but they do it so well that they end up being all the more memorable. I think that this episode, looking back on it and having rewatched it, I I want to say that I love how the news slowly unfolds throughout the town itself. It has such a devastating impact on this small community and I feel a bit jaded going into it because it's like, you know, we live in like a a much larger place than Twin Peaks and you know we hear about these sorts of things like all the time and we become like so desensitized to uh you know tragic moments like this occurring and but in this community like it's it's so deeply felt on almost an intuitive level and you just see like the wash of emotions pour over each of the characters that get their screen time and I I love how the camera itself has a similar feel to Truman's character the camera has like such a gentle and patient look like it's so hard to describe even like the camera work is that in this in this show but it has a very uh, it's so hard for me to describe but I love how how it just focuses in on like a lot of the subtleties that that go on and gives each of the characters like enough screen time to actually show the range of their emotions like especially when um uh the news is broken to Laura's parents and everything 
But then, uh, wait, wait, what were you gonna say? There's a lot of hooks. There's a lot of characters are introduced, and they show enough to get you hooked, to put like a put a fishing line hook out for you, to be intrigued, <laughs> and also, and also the interconnectedness of everyone, centralized around Laura. It's like yeah, Harry Harry recognizes her. So does Doc Hayward. And then as the episode progresses, you you see all these connections that are, uh, yeah, all the connections between characters that you have, like, a brief window with. And it's just, it, I remember my first viewing uh, definitely got me hooked and trying to solve the whodunit, who killed Laura Palmer. I was like, I was definitely on board by the end of the pilot, for sure. Yeah, I also like how it sort of sets up, uh, like, you mentioned that air of mystery, Pat. It it sort of does that with a few different storylines by planting different seeds throughout the episode. Uh, one of the other sort of uh, seeds that it plants is the creation of the Ghostwood community, which is, of course, once we are, once we are introduced to the Great Northern... Which is the ho- or the hotel that presides over those looming waterfalls, um, ran by Ben and Jerry Horn. I don't think uh, Jerry was introduced in this episode yet, but um, we see Ben with Leland Palmer, who's Laura's father, and they're sort of a uh, setting up a deal with. I want to say a Norwegian. Yeah, nor with a yes with a with a group of Norwegian businessmen to sort of develop this new community just past Twin Peaks. And and we sort of get this uh this beeline where Ben is wanting to not only develop Ghostwood but also snatch up the Packard sawmill because there's news and rumors that it's going to close down soon. And I love how they sort of paint this looming figure of Ben Horn as being the sort of like the upper elite of this community who basically like owns I, I forget the exact number that uh, Truman said but a, a great portion of the town itself and we are also introduced to Audrey who is the daughter of Ben and sort of the antagonizing figure of Ben as well uh, they have a very interesting dynamic between the two and uh at this point, we see Sarah Palmer, Laura's mother, call the Great Northern to try and get a hold of Leland. And I think that this is like right around the time that Ben is, you know, giving his whole spiel to the businessmen to try and like get them to sink their money into this development project. And <laughs> I love how Ben sort of has this very affable personality, but has this very sinking, dark-like mentality once he actually talks to Leland about making it snappy, you know, like, hurry up and get back here. Hi everyone, this is Kevin. I'm recording this after we uploaded the initial episode. It unfortunately came to our attention that a good chunk of uh, the episode was unfortunately dropped due to technical issues. And there was a really great point that Ben's made that I'm going to try to recite from memory. 
Ben's mentioned that there was a part in the episode that he really enjoyed where Sarah is sort of in like a delirious state of mind and she thinks that she hears Laura upstairs and this sort of uh, startles her a little bit but then she eventually comes to and realizes that it's not her because the people have sort of a heavier footstep and he mentions something along the lines of really appreciating uh, that connection that Sarah has with Laura and that sort of bond that parents have with their children to where they can pick up on their little mannerisms. But anyways, let's get back to the episode. Thank you. Yeah, like all the minute little details and everything like that. Like that that reminds me of um when I used to live with my family, uh my and I moved out, my whenever I would go back, my mom would say yeah, like, I, I sort of miss hearing your footsteps, like, in the hallway, like, early in the morning when you're, like, getting ready for work. And I could always tell, like, when you're walking down the hallway because you're not, like, everyone else who, like, stomps and stuff. Like, you have a very light foot. And she could always tell, like, when I was cooking, too, because of, like, the smells in the kitchen. And she recently came over to my house recently. And she's like, oh, yes, like, this place smells like you. And, and it's so strange how, like, parents can, like, know more about you than you know about yourself in a way because they brought you into this world and like since we're since we're kind of stuck in our own bodies and consciousness 24 7 we sort of lose sight and sort of forget about like our mannerisms and uh certain characteristics that are linked to ourselves and it's it's so strange the idea of knowing how others perceive you because you perceive yourself in a certain way but other people like catch on to certain details about you as an individual and i i love that i love that so much just because it it's there's something so endearing about that in a way where like, although we don't recognize and remember a lot of the details that we have from day to day, we recognize the and remember the impressions that they left. And I don't know. I love that about that, especially like what you were both saying about Sarah's uh, ability to hone in on that, especially with the footsteps upstairs. And yeah, Sarah has sort of a, a manic personality when I first watched this, I I had that same inclination of, uh, is this person completely sound as well? Like, are they, do they have like a history of like mental illness or what, what's going on with them? Because she seems like a very, like a very anxious individual. And I want to say that both her and Leland's faces I, I don't know what it is about them, but they just have so much texture to them and that every subtle look that they have, whether it's like the movement of the eyes or the grimace that they share or anything like that, they just have like this, it just cuts to my core every time I see them on screen. And that beautiful sequence of Sarah calling uh, Leland, Leland saying, oh, Sheriff Truman has just entered in, and then Sarah just crumbles. And then the, the whole sequence of the phone line, of the camera going down following the line after Leland drops it, and then we just hear Sarah's wailing in the background. And 
it's like, of course she hasn't hung up, because why would she? Like, she's so overtaken by these emotions that, like, she is not even thinking about all of these other things going on in the world. And the same with Leland, too. Like, they're just so overtaken by this devastating blow. And this is probably, it's probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire episode. I really do like that idea that you brought up of um, presented self and like perceived self. Um, it really plays into like the opening of the film with, um, you know, looking into the mirror and it just really plays into like the whole murder mystery genre itself where we, we look at each character um, the way that they present themselves. But then also we like we create this like, oh, what's their motive? Like in our in our own heads, like we we kind of we we separate them into like oh like what's their like their true self and like like how are they presenting them like we're always looking for clues about like who this person really is and um it's we never in 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 murder mysteries we see that a lot with like the suspects but we like it's it's interesting how they do it here with a victim like it's um like a by the end it's like oh is Laura's like not who we thought she was as well like we we had constructed our own our own idea of what she is as well yeah you bring up a really good point with that um and honestly that makes me appreciate the opening shot of this episode even more since you framed it that way Benz because you know you just have somebody just looking in the mirror seeing how they view themselves but it, even the idea of looking in a mirror is so strange because that's the closest that we can I mean aside from like having a photo taken of ourselves but that is the most basic form of being able to even like look at ourselves but it's in a completely warped way because it, like I want to say that the image is flipped to us uh, horizontally so although like we're like oh this is like a good side of, of my face like it, it, it isn't going to appear that way to, to others because it's completely flipped and it's like we can come close to the truth, but we just barely skate past it every time. Um, and I, I love that notion itself purely because it makes us more aware of the limitations of our own experience, um, especially with, you know, having to constantly relearn the same lessons over and over again before they finally stick. And even then, like, sometimes we are apt to forget that um, purely because, like, we have a very uh, limited and short and a very, like, we don't have as much memory as, as like, a computer does. Like, we, we don't have, like, hard drives to, like, back up all this stuff. Uh, memories are like doomed to be forgotten and everything like that and I with the perceived self versus like the like your own image of yourself I, I really like that idea Benz just because like with Laura like we're already starting to formulate this person you know like we see her uh, in her most raw distant state which is you know uh found on the shore and then it's that great moment of like uh zooming in uh on the portrait of her 
for her homecoming or for the the prom. I forget which one it was, but she was like this 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 town darling that everybody sort of had a connection to, and sort of placed her on a pedestal. And I feel like what the essence of this show is going for is to not uh, to not limit yourself to that sort of thinking and to that sort of framing of placing people or ideas on a pedestal as being sort of unfalsifiable because there's a great danger to that because once you've sort of looked past the idea of being wrong you are more inclined to fall off and go down the wrong path you know way past the point of return and I feel like this show is like a warning to that But uh, moving on, we have, I mean, of, of course, with the, the Ghostwood development, we then end up at the Double R Diner, which is where Bobby, Shelly, and Norma are all introduced. And this is only enhances the, the mystery and the suspense of like hidden of like uh, secrets and everything that the town has. For instance, once Shelly gets off work, she goes into Bobby's car and then, you know, Bobby automatically says like, oh, I think that Norma's onto us. And you, you sort of feel like you're being included in this little pocket of uh, time and that, you know, you're you're one of the few people who knows about uh, Bobby and Shelly being an item, even though Bobby was supposed to be with Laura and Shelly has her own partner who's Leo. And Norma's sort of this uh, understanding. I want to say that she's like Shelly, but an older version of Shelly, like a much more tamed, uh, real, or a much more wise version of Shelly. And after that, we end up in the morgue, which um, which is where we first see uh, Laura. And I, I think that this is the point where Leland actually comes in and sees her as well. He confirms it's her, which is a rough, a rough reality being checked in the show. And then um, after that scene, we move into the school and I, I always during this time around, I viewed the school as sort of like a saloon uh, in a way, because you have like students hanging out around you know, during class, like just hanging out against like lockers and stuff. And then we see a uh, Bobby come in through the saloon doors. And then all of a sudden we see Mike and he tells, uh, you know, Bobby, like, hey, you know, there's somebody like, you know, they're like the cops are like looking for you and everything like that and about like Laura and everything. But I also love how zany this reality is too because like there's one of my favorite moments in this entire episode is the dancing kid in the hallway <laughs> like do you all remember that yeah oh yeah i i noticed that <laughs> this time around but i didn't notice it like i've seen this series like twice before um like 10 years ago and like maybe five years ago and i just didn't notice that until like and it stands out like so like like in the background but it's like oh how did i miss that <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, he, here we're we're also introduced to uh, Donna and James, who are two of Laura's confidants and two of her best friends. Um, we later find out that James and Laura had their own thing going on. And Donna is sort of like, well, Donna is Laura's best friend. And then eventually we move on to back at the house once more, uh, where Laura's diary is found by Hawk, who's another uh, deputy of the local police department. And uh, also, this is where we find out that Laura is not the only victim and that a potential second victim uh has all I mean they were they've basically gone missing and it was by uh Yannick Pulaski he was a worker at the sawmill uh we find out that his daughter has gone missing too and it's sort of opening up this this can of worms that oh is this just the is this just the beginning or has this been going on for a while of these killing sprees I, I love the uh I love the the gravity given to Laura. When, uh, is it Donna? Or, not Donna. It's uh, I forget her first name. The Plansky girl. That's how. Oh, yeah. Ronette. Ronette Pulaski. Yeah, I love I love the little thing of like everyone's like maybe it's because Laura's been found, but like everyone's like feeling the psychic trauma. Of like Laura's death and like they're like oh my god, and then like <laughs> Ronette gets very little love except for like her dad being excused from work that day <laughs> and taken by the sheriff. Yeah, that's so <laughs> that's so devastating. I mean, yeah, it's like it feels like a bit of like yeah the popular girl versus the normal background person. Yeah, the show's not about her, but it's just like a little thing I always loved. I was like, oh, I, I especially with seeing other stuff down the line the series has. I, was like, I really like Ronette's arc, her small arc. I like she's a very underappreciated character for me. It really hits home. I do. Yeah, I do find it interesting. I think maybe he's playing into because her last name Pulaski. Like um, she's like has an immigrant background compared to like Laura, who is like more, um, you know, uh, white Anglo-Saxon. Um, mm -hmm. So I think like he's like he's doing something there that's kind of interesting. Um, you know, with like the um, kind of like immigrants being like outsiders of like a place, um, especially with, like a like the idea of Twin Peaks with like a, a small town where like everyone knows each other. Like for for people not to like, uh, to to not have the attention that they have towards like this other woman, um, oh, yeah. Laura is like pretty interesting. That reminds me of the uh, German waitress. Was, uh, yeah, yeah. Was very little lines, but she's like a fun character. Like what's Bobby's line? I thought you Germans were always, were always on time. It's a good and little dog joke. And all she does is laugh. Yeah. Like clearly she's just trying to make like ends meet. Okay, <laughs> like, Bobby, bye bye. 
Yeah, it's like um, you almost have to sort of quell your natural inclination to, you know, like lash out for fear of, you know, being fired or anything like that. It's like the it's it goes back to that classic Americana notion of the customer is always right and that sort of thing where, you know, you constantly have to serve them in order to, you know, like pocket their money and everything like that. I, I love how Lynch doesn't sort of steer away from that notion as well. Like he he sort of incorporates that. It's it's pretty it's pretty privilege. Mm-hmm. Got a lot of models pretty in the show. Pri- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All it does is like amplify that soap opera feel of uh, the melodrama because it's like, do we want to see like, like wouldn't this be better if the person were also good looking? Like, <laughs> and they they do that a lot with uh with the framing as well, especially with like, uh James. Like he sort of has this uh, <laughs> like this um, classic Americana like rebel, like James Dean look to him. Yeah. <laughs> they share a name. Yeah, he does. He like. Um, the casting is so brilliant on that, or like the you know the makeup department or whatever. It's like oh whoa, like it it gives you. Lynch does it so well. He gives you like characters that you that are like so familiar to you, um, that are like also like they're familiar, but then also I don't know that like someone like that in my real life. Like I think I do, but I don't. You know. Yeah. It's like for yeah, and then the the juxtaposition between like a Norma and Bobby and Laura. Versus like a Leland and a Sarah Palmer or a Jacobian. Or yeah, there's like there's models walking around and then there's just unique people that have unique features. Even Lucy and Andy fall into that. Me. Mm-hmm. So Jacobian, is that the um is that the guy with the um the Google earplugs? Yeah, the psychiatrist. Oh, okay, that's him. Yeah, um, I I definitely agree. They Lynch does like a really good job of, or I guess that the casting in this is, and also like just the way that they play up the appearance of all these characters, it it's sort of tapping into that ingrained notion of archetypes that we have in our own uh, society of of you know like you have the the lonesome or the the loner who rides a motorcycle who wears like a leather jacket who doesn't like say too much. And then you have like the rowdy uh, degenerate who is also like a jock in, in the guise of Bobby. And then you have the, the really clean, posh, uh, well-off ar- archetype of Donna. And like the very wise, reserved, uh, but also, but also uh, aware of, of the younger generation, Norma. Who's sort of uh, you know ushering in Shelley into the next generation, um, and I, I I definitely agree too. Like although like even if you don't know these characters or examples that uh, tie into people in your own life, they definitely tap into that perceived notion that you know we see during uh, our exposure to mass media throughout our lifetime. And it's sort of a very great way of building up a persona 
without being having that much time to show the show it in its entirety. It's a very solid introduction to them. And then we soon find out that there's a lot more uh, dynamics and layers to these characters as the series goes on. And it's it, it does like what any sort of great work of art does. It, it like draws you in with a sense of famili familiarity, but then also stems off into this other branch that you aren't necessarily as familiar with. Um, and it's in the melding of the two where something entirely unique comes out of it. Yeah, going back to like the um, characters, um, like the very specified characters, Lynch does a like I think he um, does it a lot. Definitely with you know the, the clothing, with, like with the leather jacket. Also, um, I forget who said it, but like the way that a character dresses themselves is like, uh, uh, like you could you could say a lot about the character just by like you know how they dress it's like the most um even if they don't say anything like you could read it off them and it's like it's kind of like audrey with her with her fancy shoes you know like um mm -hmm. she presents herself in a certain way but like it always has like that focus on like like her shoes like it has like a like a, yeah, an intense focus on like you know, this is a person that glitch a little bit isn't she she's wearing like not, not nurses shoes, but they're like, uh, you know, they're 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 reserved. Uh, and the over the emphasis on them builds up that I, if I remember correctly, when she gets to school, she changes her shoes. Does she not? Oh, yes, she it's does. Yeah. Red yeah, heels. Great, yeah. Great little communication. Like, oh, she's leaving like, like tap dance shoes almost or whatever. And yeah, the second she has independence, she's away. She's immediately like, yeah, give me the red heels. Give me the. Yeah, but you, I, I do love that. And one of my favorite direct connections, I kind of feel the one of his previous works to Twin Peaks is. Ah, what's I'm forgetting the name right in this moment. But uh, Blue Velvet. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Blue Velvet. Yes. Uh, Dennis Hopper's character. Mm. Doesn't he have like the chevron shirt or tie under the jacket? That's like a muted <laughs> chevron. I'm trying to remember. It's like someone has. I think it's him. He has like a zig, like but like the floors in later scenes and mm -hmm. locations in the series. He has that like integrated to his outfit. Mm -hmm. And go, yeah. I, when I go back to that, I always see like, oh, it's like an early, it's like an early uh, integration to his other stuff. His other obsessions he puts in his films and shows hey, that I love even it's weird that he has that uh that similar thing going on because it's also like present in like a racer head with like the flooring and everything like that of that classic zigzag and yeah I, I I definitely gotta agree like it's it's really cool how he you could like trace the sort of like fascinations that people have that sort of span across their entire line of work But yeah, but like Ben said, but art direction and interior design, like those are vital parts of filmmaking. <laughs> and Lynch is very on top of that, especially in Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's crazy how like um, 
in more conventional like shows we don't really pay attention to it like that much um, but like in twin peaks like he uses a lot of things that are very familiar that like we've seen before but like we there's like he uses it in like uh a way that we like we really have to pay attention to it almost yeah there's like even like a, a a funny little moment where um you know throughout the show we see you know the constant uh mounted heads of like slain animals you know sprinkled throughout like all these different buildings and then we see like one that's on the table like and then it, it's just explained as oh yeah that one fell off <laughs> and it's like such a a unique like little touch showing like how oh we're familiar with this thing but here it is like a sort of not in its most pristine form like it's just it fell off the wall onto a table and nobody's had the time to put it back up like <laughs> it's a great it's it's one of those great like there's so many it's like the yeah the deer head it's oh it's a it's a dead it's a dead bean that we discover in the show they walk in the room and the yeah the deer head is on the table and they're kind of taken aback by it. And then a character comes in and goes like, oh, that's oh, it fell off the thing. Like, oh, that's like if you if you sit there and like overanalyze like, oh, it's like Laura. It's it's like them finding Laura again. It's a small microcosm recreation. That's like it's almost like a it seems like malicious, like when you first see it and it's yeah. like explained the funniest way. Even, um, you know what that reminds me of? The scene where, uh, where Sarah Palmer is going upstairs to get Laura out of bed. Um, and then we see her, like, frantic frantically searching, and it's from that really strange upward angle of, uh, that showcases, like, the stairwell also leading up to Laura's room. But then there's that fan that's going on. And then after that scene comes to, has reached its climax we just zoom in on that looming fan and it's such a a unique way of presenting an everyday object in a very uncanny and almost um hyper realistic way that sort of takes on its own uh consciousness like that there's something about that fan that is so malevolent in nature uh why, like even just the the speed at which it's moving he he takes these normal things and I, I just love how he frames them and imbues them with their own twisted way or twisted form of life but um eventually we uh move on uh we see ed the first instance of big ed Big Ed Hurley, who owns the local uh, gas stop on the outskirts of town. And then we see his his wife, Nadine, with the eye patch. And she's... <laughs> this is the first intro to her talking about her uh, runners. Her curtains and drapes and stuff like that. And it's, it's like such a everyday occurrence that you would come across of like, you know, someone nagging their partner about, you know, doing this chore that they've put off, <laughs> but also mixing it in with the the tragicness of uh, Laura and how Dean, or how uh, James is lamenting 
to Ed that, you know, he isn't going to be able to, like, stick around for much longer. Like, he just has to get out. And then it's just offset by that wackiness of Nadine. And, and then finally, we're introduced to Dale Cooper. Special Agent Dale Cooper. Um, um just one thing. Um, what was yeah, the ask that she asked, um, asked him to do? Oh, she, oh, she asked, uh, uh, she, Nadine asks Ed to put up her curtains. Oh, whoa, that's interesting. Um, because she is, like, we never see her, but, like, she is kind of like that. And we'll, we we the way that she's framed is, like, inside of, like, the house, and she's, like, not, she's, like, it's interesting, like, that dial that one dialogue and like i feel like it's it's there to kind of like represent like the like the average person that's like kind of like not in the main character or like secondary character or whatever but that kind of just like wants to put up those blinders and like kind of like not see like what's coming but like it's interesting because she has a scene the only scene later is like when she meets um i forget her name but like she's the another uh waitress at the at the uh a diner and like um it seems like there would be like a confrontation there like that she knows this, there's like kind of like an affair going on but like she doesn't <laughs> she's like kind of clueless to it um but yeah, yeah she, she, that, that is a wait what are you saying pat there is a conflict she's 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 gonna get her silent curtains her silent drape runners Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it seems like it was gonna be like um, like oh she knows she knows um, but then she yeah, and then it turns into that. It was like it's pretty hilarious. Yeah, I don't remember because I totally forgot about that 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 moment there. But it's like so specific, you know. It's like it has to like um, it has to be there like for a reason. I feel, but um, but yeah, I've always. And I don't even I didn't even catch her name actually. Um, Nadine? Nadine, okay, yeah. Um but yeah, and also she's like uh yeah, I I've always like she was like a kind of like an interesting character because it's like she has very little screen time, but it's like kinda like punctuated there almost as like a like a as uh like a a commoner in the town that's like not involved like they're that are that is not entangled in the web you know even though so much of the town is entangled in the web yeah and um (laughs) that 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 appearance of nadine as well it's it's also or i guess the conventional appearance of nadine is also offset by like this very quirky eye patch that she has and it's interesting that uh, you brought up that parallel of um, her wanting to like sort of shut out the world from her window. Uh, how she is the one with the eye patch as well, and how she's just completely absorbed in her own inner world, and she just all she wants is silent drapes to basically tune out all of these other senses that are constantly at odds with the figurative wall that she puts up between her inner world and the outer world and that she's completely unaware of what's going on with Ed and Norma <laughs> I I say she is that's what the drapes oh. are mm. I'm gonna have my silent drapes 
that Ed put up. I'm gonna have Ed. And, but yeah, she does have a blind eye to their affair. With the, uh, the eye patches of what I always read it as. As well as the background you get on the story later on. <laughs> or why she cries like that. But yeah, I, I always. It's not direct, but I always felt like she's. Because later on, she there's scenes with her and Ed where she kind of goes, like, oh, I've always, like. Not always known, but she's like. She talks about their high school experience and her anxieties. <laughs> it's like. It's it's hard to believe this show was what 89 90 yep this this came out in 89 yeah it's just yeah and there's just so much there's so much depth and so it does so much so early that yeah it's just like nade yeah that all of nadine stuff i love even in the final season and it's just looking back that's the feeling i get still with the uh, the Norma confrontation in the department store, I just want to say my own uh, little hot take. I will die on the hill defending season two, <laughs> purely because of the moments like that. Uh, what you're talking about, Pat, where it has like these very humanizing moments of like all these secondary characters and like it, how it just feels like so ahead of its time in terms of like capturing that depth inside of them um and i feel like mark frost has a lot to do with building up those those smaller moments between characters and i am very grateful for that because it's like that's something that i crave um a lot in tv shows is like those smaller quieter moments that we get um and uh yeah once once dale is introduced we um are also introduced to yet another side character who is unseen, and that's his, uh... I, I'm not even sure what to call her, but, um... Well, her name is Diane, of course, but I'm not sure what to... How to establish, like, the relationship between her and Cooper. Uh, I feel like she's sort of like this receptionist, maybe, but maybe not. I don't know. But he goes on to, uh, detail every single thing that he can uh say to her uh, regarding like the date time weather what he had uh, to eat which was a tuna fish sandwich a slice of cherry pie and a cup of coffee at the lamp lighter inn um and then he goes on to say that he's going to be meeting up with truman uh at the hospital to visit the body of laura palmer and then this is where we're first introduced to Dr. Jacoby, who's sort of this, um, I, I get the sense that he's this, this looming figure of the hospital who is sort of trying to like maintain his, uh, his hip factor, but especially with like his, his, uh, tie that he has, which is like of the hula girl who's topless. But then you could also like, she has like these, uh, little tassels on her waist that you can like lift up and then see what underneath there like that's what he was kind of doing with it he's kind of like this very pervy figure and he seems like he preys upon people in a way but uh he's also he's all of a sudden interested once he finds out that dale and uh truman are going to 
uh, view this view the body of Laura because Laura was a patient of his. And one thing I love about Dale off the very bat in this situation is that even beforehand, he makes sure to establish the relationship that people have with him uh, because he, he is a very affable person. He is a bit different than Truman in the sense that he, like Ben said earlier, is a very eccentric individual who has sort of this giddiness and childlike quality to himself where he is completely fascinated but also takes his profession very very seriously um that i i'd imagine that he has had instances where he has had to put people in their place for breaching his own boundaries for letting them get too comfortable with him to where they sort of tread upon his his uh responsibilities and yet another reason why i love truman once cooper does this he he tells uh, Truman like hey just to let you know just to get this out of the way I am in charge of this investigation like everything that goes on it's gonna be like the FBI's role of responsibility like you are being brought in to like help and like I just want you to understand re and respect that and then Truman just he's like yeah I'm glad to have you on board uh, like he, he doesn't put his ego in the way of solving this murder which I feel is so could be a very a prevalent problem in this line of work, I'd imagine. Yeah, it subverts like a convention that's in all these, like in, a, in, a, in another world's Twin Peaks. Yeah, that's like that's like the show's essentially building to their confrontation. Or there's like big things that happen because of their them knocking heads on the investigation. Where this is like, no, it's it's squashed immediately and it just makes the characters more realistic and endearing of like yeah this is what real people would do or I would want them to do if I was murdered brutally and my body was found I'd want to I'd want Cooper and Truman on the case and it's at this moment where Dale starts to show much more of his eccentricities on screen. Uh, he is, it's, it's been talked about earlier before in the, in the show where he was talking about, uh, the fingernails of like previous victims, um, and how we actually see it on screen now, what he's looking for. And Truman kind of starts to, this is his moment where he starts to, you know, uh, there starts to be some friction between the two because he says, oh, you know, we've already checked your body. There isn't anything in the fingernails. And then all of a sudden we see what Dale has been looking for, which is a tiny, tiny little cutout piece from uh, that has a letter R on it. And we sort of see this realization that Truman wasn't right about, uh, you know, trying to well dale's curiosities and it there this is sort of like the storming factor of the two of them joining up as a as a duo and a team and i like how they don't shy away from that as well um and all of a sudden we we're moving we're doing interviews 
Yes, yes, we're we're in the interview section where Dale is bringing in uh, not only Bobby but also Donna, and they're trying to you know question where Laura was the night she was murdered, like what happened, uh, where they were, what their connections were to individuals who are who are alluded to in evidence but aren't necessarily uh, fully fleshed out yet. And I I love the way that Dale handles this as well. He is applying just enough force to let them know that he, you know, is smarter than he appears, but also is willing to recognize when people are not guilty. Um, And I I also love the way that Truman handles it too. He just sort of like takes a, a... takes you know his role in the passenger seat to try and like learn from dale in a way even though like there's clearly like an age difference between the two uh in the in the interrogations there's one of the there's one moment from dale that really uh is hammered home his character for me early on along with him pulling truman to the side at the start uh, I think it's with Bobby, where uh, Bobby's getting animated, and I think Dale just looks at Truman, and then he like he smiles, and like he just like looks back, and then he does like the soft voice of like, oh like, Bobby, here's how this works. We ask the questions, and you answer them, briefly, in a concise manner, okay? <laughs> it's just yeah, it's just like a unique way of. It's like one of my favorite moments in the early this episode that just like hammers home his character of like he, you can't intimidate him, but he's he's always in control of like, yeah, this, I don't know. It's just like, again, it just reminds me of more typical shows or something like, you know, like I, someone would get so frustrated, they'd reach over the table and pull the guy and the lawyer would be like, OK, well, we're getting out of here. You, you blew your interview. We're leaving. You got to get a subpoena or whatever the hell. But no, this one's just like a it's just like a funny little firm expression of power that uh, reels Bobby in. I, I also want to say that uh, during my initial viewing of Twin Peaks, I hated Bobby for the longest time. And after watching it this time around, I I have like sort of a newfound appreciation for him because I understand that, you know, he has his own failings as a, as an individual, like we all do, but he is sort of in this very turbulent phase of his life where he's just trying to figure out his own way. Like he has like this, this weight of popularity placed upon him, which, you know, is, is not really that big of a problem in the grand scheme of things, but we sort of see how it weighs on him because of his, uh, very short, um, but also pivotal moments that he's probably gone through uh, during his life. Uh, we we see that he's not living uh, a very decent life because of uh, his his like own vices and everything. Uh, but I I just love the the picture that they're painting of him and that he is definitely flawed. But when he knows that he's not guilty of something he isn't afraid to like lash out and like try to defend himself 
which, you know, albeit isn't the best way to go about doing that, but we do get sort of like a humanizing factor towards him. Um, and, and then, um, after that, we, oh gosh, what, what happens? Oh, okay. So then we get, there's like a little note. I want to say where, uh, Laura says, meet me at the roadhouse or no, uh, no, 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 no. It's, uh, Donna. Donna leaves a note that says, uh, meet me at the roadhouse at 9.30. Wait, no, is it Donna or James who does that? I think James leaves the note to his uncle, and his uncle oh. gives it to Donna. Yes, yes, you're right. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it's once again, like, continuing on, like, the mystery of, like, secret meetings, hidden agendas, like, all these different things that are going on. And it's sort of like a whirlpool that's, like, starting to form. And then we finally get into Laura's diary, where <laughs> it's like a nice little <laughs> jab, where um, Truman pulls out the diary and then there's a lock on it. And then he's like, oh, yeah, we're, we're still trying to find the key. And then all of a sudden, like, Dale just, like, props it open, <laughs> breaks, busts open the lock. <laughs> and then they just start reading it. <laughs> Um, but then they come across like a entry where, uh, Laura writes that she has a meeting with Jay tonight and that she's feeling nervous about it. And then they flip over a few pages and find a bag with a safety deposit key in it. And then, uh, Dale goes on to say that, you know, uh, or he's actually very careful with the bag and he wants to like have it sent off for, um, for forensics to test it for cocaine. And this immediately brings up yet another point of friction between Dale and Truman in that Truman knows Laura. He, he has this own idea of her and he knows what she wouldn't, wouldn't do. And he's like, no, there's no way that there's cocaine for the, in, in that bag. Whereas Dale says that, you know, he, you know, that there's a potential that he doesn't know Laura as well as he thinks he does. And it's like yet another point of showing like how even the most upstanding members of society can like have their own moments of failure because it's like failure is like a constant present in all of our daily lives. And it's like, how do you respond to that point of failure? Do you get frustrated? Do you completely cast it aside? Or do you treat it as a point of failure and try to learn from that? Yeah, I think it goes into like Cooper is that outsider figure that kind of date that helps uh, you know Truman out in uh, in seeing things with like these outsider eyes, you know, um, because like the law enforcement there, like they put out a curfew, and you know, there's like whole scene where it's like a, a packed bar, no one's following the curfew. There's like there's like that daytime people and then there's like the nighttime people and then there's like it's almost like that that, that daytime is like the idealized side of Twin Peaks and then underneath it it's like there's like that other existence that's like also part of Twin Peaks too but that is that that we shut ourselves off to or like that we just that we don't see or like we we need like that outsider to like help us see 
the great motif Lynch does. And it's why his Americana, I think, sticks so hard or hits so hard where he, he embraces the small town America daytime stuff. But then he also directly integrates the the darker aspects, which fits into our whole national identity. Of like, yeah, there's like, you know, freedom of speech stuff, but American history is very, very colorful. <laughs> very dark and that's a looming psychic presence even on our subconscious level and he just captures it in every piece of media and Twin Peaks is a great example of that yeah it's a really good uh, timeless thing that is sort of ingrained in his work but what were you saying Benz? oh I was just about to say that um with uh, Eraserhead, he just gave us like the bad of Philadelphia. I guess it was like his like experiences in Philadelphia is like kind of like what shaped that movie. And it was like it's like not rocky. It's not um, you know it's it, it's uh, it's not like the iconic stuff. It's like the the, the grimy like Philadelphia. And um, I think he even takes a dig at dig in on Philadelphia in this episode two, or it might have been episode one or the pilot, I'm not sure. He he says to um Diane, uh Twin Peaks it beats Philadelphia or some shit like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> interesting. Like he's remarking at the trees and the beauty of nature. It's like sure beats Philadelphia, Diane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, um just a, a little side note, uh, Ben's. You mentioned uh, you couldn't remember if it happened in this first episode or in the pilot. For anyone who's like new to this series, the Twin Peaks started off as a pilot to. I, I want to say that there's like a, a European cut or a Canadian cut where it's like a full-on feature film. Um, that isn't to say that this first episode isn't like that as well, but it has a much more uh, conclusive nature to it. Uh, to try and encapsulate the entirety of what this show would be like. So there's that own standalone piece, and then there's the first episode, which is the one that we're talking about, that doesn't necessarily uh, incorporate all of the expansive ideas that are to come in the future inside of it. And I believe that it is in this episode where he does take that dig at Philadelphia. Um, And I uh, read his uh, memoirs, uh, Room to Dream, which is kind of a, which is David Lynch's memoir. And it's a very strange type of memoir because he has, uh, like it's all broken up into like certain sections, but they each, within those sections, there's two subsections. There's the first part, which is uh, written from a a third party. I want to say it's like one of his like collaborators or someone, uh, her name's Christine McKenna. And she sort of details Lynch's life during certain periods of time and then interviews certain people who had connections to him during that time. And then in the other subsection of the expansive one, we have Lynch's own recollections of those times. And yes, uh, I think that that you're very much right in um, how Lynch talked or how Lynch uh, portrayed uh, Philadelphia in Eraserhead. We just see this very crushing almost a mechanical dystopia 
uh, of failing parts and just steam and pollution and sort of like this toxic waste dump of of a town enshrouded in metal with with little to no nature involved in it whereas with Twin Peaks it's very much the it could be considered the antithesis of that because of how much uh, because of how the landscape in it of itself is a more grounded and natural phenomena and it sort of like enshrouds the town of Twin Peaks whereas in Eraserhead it's this very flat uh, landscape where it's just like this very domineering presence of just metal buildings and uh, d decay and all these other things. And yeah, even like during his time in Philadelphia, like it, you could see like in, in the memoirs, you could see how it shaped his, the way that he goes about uh, his own artistic ex expression because he started off with like painting and like moved on to, into like sculpting and stuff. And you could see like how all of that is still very much ingrained in his filmography and you know with deconstructing things as well and Philadelphia just seemed like a very trying time in his life uh in like art school and everything like that and then eventually he moved out to Los Angeles uh to go into the AFI um program which is where he made a racer in was a uh, classmate, I believe, with uh, Terrence Malick in the same class. Yeah, isn't, isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, they both have, like, this very transcendental view of, like, going above, like, the typical norms found in uh, cinema by just creating, like, this own space within time for themselves. Also, like, very classical American. Like, Terrence Malick is not uh, he's like an American filmmaker, but he doesn't make like, uh, like, uh, like kind of studio films. He does like his own Americana, um, that is different than Lynch, but it's also different than like a studio system, like, um, Badlands and, um, it's a good, it's a, uh, recognizable, but it's like, um, uh, structured differently. But I also like that idea of um, Cooper being like the main character of Twin Peaks and like he is like that East Coast guy coming going into that rural area. You could tell he's like a city guy and he's like he's going into like a like a rural area and like interacting with like small town people. Um, so I always thought that was because I, I believe David Lynch is also from like uh, Montana as well. He's like a from a small town as mm -hmm. well. And then, um, after this, uh, this, after we find out that, uh, there was a safety deposit key, which is once again, setting up more beats down the road, we get a call from Andy, uh, to Lucy back at the sheriff's station, uh, saying that they have come across the crime scene of where the murder took place. And I love this brief little glimpse into Andy's character where he's clearly crying, like, once again. And he tells Lucy, uh, tell Harry I didn't cry. And 
And it's just so... It's so insightful and so endearing, and I just love that so much, about how... He's never gonna get past this sort of characteristic that he has of being overwhelmed by crime scenes. Which is like such a unique juxtaposition of him even joining or even pursuing this line of work of uh, having to face like harsh realities on a day to day basis. But in the town of Twin Peaks, it's not necessarily as prevalent as it would be out in like in the likes of like Philadelphia or like Los Angeles, like all these large urban centers. Um, and then we get Lucy just being so kind and just so nurturing towards Andy and it just creates like this very nice warmth between the two and then we move back to the the storyline uh, that's being put in place of uh, the Ghostwood development where clearly we're getting closer and closer to the deal taking place and we're in the room with the businessmen uh, and then all of a sudden Audrey comes in the room and starts <laughs> just wandering around the place and she starts to catch a bunch of wandering eyes who are confused about why she's even in there and then she just drops the the line that her best friend was murdered and this sort of sets an avalanche effect into a, uh, into place with the business deal And then, um, after the interviews of Bobby and Donna, we get back to, uh, seeing what life is like at, uh, the Horn residence, which, you know, obviously has Ben Horn, his wife, uh, Audrey, and then we're introduced to Audrey's, uh, brother, who is, who is Johnny Horn. And I want to say that, uh, Johnny has some sort of, uh, impairment, uh, I, I, can't for sure say what it is but um he's definitely stunted in his mental growth um because his mother keeps telling to audrey like hey like i've tried telling him that laura isn't going to be by to deliver his meals on wheels and clearly johnny is very upset about this because he keeps bashing his head up against a dollhouse But then after that, we get to the safety deposit box, which uh, Cooper and Truman visit. And then inside, they find a copy of a local like smut magazine called Flesh World. And inside of it, we see an article or sort of like a, um, a listing for Ronette Pulaski, which is the girl who has gone missing uh, as, you know, which was kind of the pairing to Laura. And we start to... We're given a bit more points to connect the dots with. And then I want to say at this moment, this is when... Uh, is this the point where we see Ronette crossing the bridge? I think that's earlier. Okay. Is that... No, wait, that's... I, I may have it backwards. When Andy calls and he says he didn't cry, that's when they discover the train car. Mm -hmm. Was Ronette discovered before that or after? That's what I'm struggling to remember right now. They go I back to she... the hospital. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to struggle with remembering that too. But 
I love that frame of it's just that harsh, uh, decaying bridge, and then we just see just that small figure of Ronette crossing the bridge in a very shocked and uh, cautious manner. Of a uh, you know, she's I think she's like down to like a nightgown, and I remember reading in um Lynch's memoirs, Room to Dream, he talks about having having a similar experience like that back in his hometown where he witnessed a woman coming down the road from like a set of or from the mountains and she was just wearing white and she was like covered in blood and he was like a child when he saw this and it was just crazy to see this parallel drawn up between that moment in his own life with the storyline of Ronette Pulaski and how she sort of stumbles back into town almost as like a ghost um because everyone just believes that she might be already dead but now she's like so you could see it in her eyes she's just so distanced from reality that she's even like borderline catatonic very striking that yeah she's in the she's in the like the nightgown in the background in the angle there's like you see the snow cap <laughs> mountains in the background where it's like yeah the harshest the harsher environment and the vulnerability juxtaposition I do like that she we're introduced to her as like her walking across a bridge it really keeps the the idea of Twin Peaks like really confined to like area and um people have to like they come into it and like it it's not like a road it's like a you have to cross like a something like really defined like a bridge okay. yeah I'm go I'm going YouTube YouTube analyst mode right now she's she's returning to Twin Peaks from the dark <laughs> So she's literally on a bridge, returning to the daylit safety of the small town. Yeah, and it's like if you if you find yourself out at night, you're more subject to the hidden hands at at large. You know, from yeah. from grabbing hold of you. Like Laura even wrote about it in her diary, I think, that she was afraid that she might end up in the woods at night again or something like that. I forget how it exactly it was phrased. But yeah, people and people go missing in the night um, all the time. It was like, oh, the last scene. There were, in a lot of the interview process, um, people talk about where was Laura last night or uh, the exact, they're trying to get the, the timeline right with James. And he's like, okay, I tried dropped her off at this place at this time whatever it's like always at night um, which is uh which is interesting that like he it's like not only place but like time too like the the, the town actually changes like the like the town is a character and it has like we see it one way but then also it is another way that we you know, like kind of And after this point, we uh, move into the first town hall meeting uh, where the news is broken to the community members at large 
that true or that uh, Cooper believes that this is a part of a string of killings that have taken place. Because jumping back to the beginning, when um, Cooper first is introduced, he talks about uh, staying at the Lamplighter Inn, I want to say. Uh, and we find out that he was there because he was investigating the murder of another woman by the name of Teresa Banks. And he believes that Laura is a part of this and Ronette could have been the third victim. And this is sort of like the point where the actual story begins, to me at least, um, because the whole essence behind Twin Peaks was who killed Laura Palmer. Um, it's it, it's all enshrouded in mystery. We get the setup of discovering the body, everyone finding out that she's dead, and then now the search begins. And I, I want to say I love the uh, meta cooper truman moment right before the announcement at the town hall meeting where they're 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 pointing to characters of the show essentially and truman describes them as like a like a tv not tv but like maybe like a tv guide description or like i think cooper is like oh who's like he sees josie and like oh who's the who's who's the beauty and then Truman like says like oh that's blank blank she does this 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 she's connected to this <laughs> oh who's that oh that's Pete who's that that's uh not get his name but that's the guy who owns the Great Northern oh Ben yeah that's Ben Ben Horn he owns blank 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 he's trying to get the mill from uh Pete's wife who's I'm, I'm, I know the name so I forget him At right now Catherine. God damn it, Catherine! Yeah, he's like, oh. Was... But but the friction between uh, Josie and Catherine is that Catherine's brother used to own the the mill, but then he married Josie, brought her back over from Hong Kong, and then once he died, he gave the mill to Josie, even though Catherine's the one who actually runs the mill. Yeah, I I, I love that Cooper is like the surrogate audience member. And, and or there's yeah they're just exploring like oh look at these archetypes look at these characters we've written and then he goes on to ask about like what types of trees and he's like ah oh, sycamore trees and then he's like oh yeah i saw a rabbit on the way here i think it was this and then truman's like no 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 it was a snowshoe and he's like what really and he's like yeah a snowshoe he's like wow snowshoe like he just has like this deep fascination of like uncovering and like discovering all these people and uh, things that make Twin Peaks what it is. Yeah, I just love that moment. There's another one coming up, but I also they do a similar thing. And the, they also, I love the description that um, is like <laughs> that. Uh, what you're talking about, Pat, where you know they're doing like the meta analysis of like the characters and stuff, and then they just show the the log lady. And then uh, Cooper's like, hey, who's that lady carrying the log? And then Truman's like, oh, yeah, we just call her Log Lady. And then that's it. <laughs> like, there's no deep there's no deep analysis of it. She just has a log. <laughs> and then um, at this point, um, uh, I want to say that at the at the roadhouse, which is sort of that other deeper dark establishment that people venture into in the night 
Donna, of course, like leaves her house to go meet up with James. Um, and then at this like sort of epicenter for the community, we see Ed and Norma meeting together for the first time, professing their, or basically like uh, voicing their desire to be with one another and how they're going to each leave their partner soon. We get um, how Norma is kind of in... Uh, we're hint it's hinted that she's in a very strange type of a uh, possessive relationship with her husband who is in prison but is potentially going to get parole soon whereas ed is with a very distanced and uh strange eccentric individual as nadine and they both sort of lament to each other how they know how to pick the partners or how they're terrible at picking partners but they found each other and that's all that matters. And outside of that sweet moment, we get Bobby and Mike showing up to the roadhouse um, and we get like this bro this brooding tension uh, that's about to pop off because we get a call saying that from Doc Hayward saying that Donna has gone out. You know, she's, she's abiding by the curfew. And then uh, Truman tells... Cooper, like, hey, you know, uh, Donna has escaped or hasn't escaped, but she's she's out there now. And Cooper's like, hey, well, it's good that like we're outside of the roadhouse now because uh, she's going to lead us to who this J figure is. Um, and then it's it's like this. It's building up to this moment of like confrontation between all of these intersecting points of uh, characters and then finally we get Donna coming into the roadhouse and then Bobby just immediately uh, or Bobby and Mike, you know, immediately like getting up and then we see like this very dark and possessive side of Mike coming out where he's basically grabbing onto Donna, uh, telling her that they need to go now and that why is she being so secretive trying to, you know, crawl around and meet up with people like all these things. And then it eventually escalates into a fight when Big to, you know, like, leave her alone. And then, you know, it erupts into, like, this biker gang that James has, which is, like, so cliche, but, like, also not at the same time. Like, it's very fitting for this town uh, up against these two rowdy people who are uh, James, or uh, Bobby and Mike. And then eventually... Uh, one of James's confidants like comes to the rescue of Donna and he's like, hey, I'm going to take you to James. And then it's like this very melodramatic uh, sequence of them riding down this dark and twisting road while uh, Cooper and Truman catch them or uh, try to follow suit. And eventually they lose track of, of these two, but they can like hear the rumblings of like motorcycles down in the road's you know, much further down the mountain uh, side. And then we eventually find out that there is a road near the Packard Mill that uh, offshoots from the freeway. And I think that these little details are very vital uh, in terms of grasping onto because it helps paint a larger picture of the layout of Twin Peaks. Um, like, I, I, I sort of get the sense that the Packard Mill is on towards the very outskirts of it all, and it's sort of more isolated than some of the uh, the housing the housing and, like, the school structures and the hospital and police department. 
Um, so that's sort of like the meeting point where people go out to like, you know, have like these sort of secret moments where, where they communicate with one another without having like prying eyes or anything like that uh, hone in on them. And uh, once this whole thing like erupts, we we see Cooper and Truman bring James in. Uh, you know, they bring him into custody. And the whole reason James is even afraid of this is because like he doesn't have an alibi for uh, the night before. Like he he was the last person to be with Laura before she disappeared. And he knows that he can easily be seen as guilty for this. And then Donna is uh, brought back to uh, Doc Hayward. And I, I love the tenderness between Doc and Donna in this moment. Because, you know, we see that Doc is, is getting up there in age. Like, he probably had Donna and his other child at a very late point in his life. And we see, like, the patience that he demonstrates with her and the understanding. He doesn't grill into Donna when he sees her. He says, you know, we have a more pressing matter at hand. And then Donna's like, oh, what is that? And then uh, Doc says, well, we have to find out where you left your sister's bicycle. And then like, it's just like this very elating moment between the two. And I don't know, I, I, I love that sweet moment. Yeah, like I like all the I like the uh, Donna, especially the stuff with her sister and her father in this episode. Especially when the sister, when she asks the sister to cover for her while she sneaks out, and then like immediately, her dad comes upstairs and like, "Where's Don?" <laughs> I'm just like, "Okay, Dad, I got to be honest with you." <laughs> and then it just cuts to the roadhouse. <laughs> and then yeah, when they pick it up, it's like, "Oh yeah, I got to." You borrowed your sister's bike. We gotta, we gotta go find that. Back at the roadhouse. Then um, we sort of take another uh, beeline back to the the Packard Mill plotline, where uh, Catherine's on the phone with a, a shady individual who we find out is Ben Horn, and they're sort of like setting up this this coup after Josie officially closes down the Packard mill and basically fires Catherine. Um, and then we get this moment between Josie and Truman and we find out that the two of them are actually lovers. Um, and then the episode sort of ends with James being brought into custody, uh, Bobby and Mike being there as well wanting to basically like and they have like a very primal moment where they just start barking like like savage wolves against uh like this very backed james has like a, a cornered animal vibe to him and doesn't bobby get released at this point or no no i can't, I can't remember but there is that moment where uh, I think it's earlier in the episode where Briggs or Major Briggs is brought or yeah, like we, we... It's was that? It's after the interrogation. Mm. Yeah, and that's yet another pivotal character. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the, the episode ends with uh, this sort of 
piece of evidence that was alluding to uh, a missing half of Laura's necklace. And then we find that where James had buried it under a, a rock like moments earlier with Donna. Those are great. I, I, on the on the barking in the jail cells thing, I love uh, it. It just feels like Lynch got some freedom <laughs> in that regard. I really appreciate that scene, even though how weird it is. Where, like Bobby and them yell and there's like a modulation on his voice towards the end and all that. But yeah, I just really love that uh, jail scene. But um, outside of that, um, I mean, that pretty much like wraps up this first episode of uh, planting all the seeds that will eventually turn into giant sycamore trees uh, in this very deep and profound series known as Twin Peaks. Um, do we have any like final thoughts? Yes. Uh this was I I knew this was gonna be a long recording. But uh I'm looking forward to the hour long episodes. And like you said, the the seeds are planted. I'm looking forward to watch them all grow again. for inviting me on here this was uh very fun it's so good to revisit peaks after all these years i grew up in a small town and um uh i love any reminders of it and uh re-watching this series kind of reminds me of the warmth of um of, of people that like you know you meet in like small towns and stuff like that Well, it, as always, Ben, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that we get to do this series now because it has been a very long time since I've last rewatched Twin Peaks. I've been meaning to for the longest time, and this is the perfect excuse to. Um, and once again, this episode is mainly just going over the introduction, which is like pretty standard, but. It's going to eventually, I'm hoping we're going to get to so many unique like talking points on this series of uh, delving into the characters, their mindsets, and like all the actions that take place during this. And uh, if you've listened this far, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you have any thoughts, want to reach out to us, you can do so at layfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Or you could follow us on Instagram at layfilmpodcast. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. All right, let's roll it over. Lord, Lord. Laura Palmer. Laura. Laura, sweetheart, I'm not going to tell you again. <laughs>